Well, good morning again. And at this point, uh, the Reverend Dr. Sam Pasco needs no introduction to this church, uh, but there are some visitors here. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, David Glade is out today uh, worshiping at the Falls Church, our mother church. And we are glad to have the Reverend Dr. Sam Pasco with us. And he is continuing in our preaching series, The God in the Grind. So Sam, thank you for being with us. And Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Well, I'm surprised you're here, uh, to be honest. It's a holiday weekend. The weather is beautiful. Rolling thunder has blocked all the roads with some pretty tough-looking dudes. Um, and dudesses. So uh, the very fact that you're here is terrific. And you got here on a Sunday when we have a really tough passage. Uh, David, um, and for those of you who don't know, David, David's mom was my secretary for 15 years at a church in Jacksonville where David was younger. He was never little, but he was younger. And I used to follow him down the aisle. I was the pastor. He was the acolyte. And so now David is the pastor and I'm the geezer um, who should, oh, speaking of rolling, there they are. Our, the, our church was right outside the Jacksonville Naval Air Station, which for many years housed F-18s and we would talk about the sound of freedom. So there, oh, and there's a guy on a bicycle. <laughs> God bless you. He didn't get, he, he didn't get the memo. That's right. He, he, he's coming out going like I did when I was a kid. You know, I pretend I had a motor. You know. he, or, did anybody here put playing cards on your spokes? Or is that just a thing that, okay, yeah, you're dating yourselves, people. You know. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so I am just, I, I'm really glad to be here. David assigned me this passage, 1 Samuel 19, which is craziness. Uh, it is, we printed the whole thing in the service leaflet for you. Uh, we didn't read the whole thing mercifully, uh, but it's part of a larger narrative about the, the King Saul um, and his descent into madness and how God had initially chosen Saul uh, as part of God's larger plan. And then Saul kind of messed up and David is kind of weaving his life into that. And it's, it's just, it's a mess of a passage, and I really am grateful to David to, for giving it to me and leaving town. Uh, I'm going to ask Anne to, to, to play a, a piece of music here, um, and some of you may recognize it. Uh, it's, it's a piece that I, I only got familiar with because I bought, it was on the B side of, of an album that I bought way, way back when. But it's a pretty familiar piece, it turns out, and I'm just going to ask her to play it, and maybe some of you might recognize it. Anne? Does anybody here recognize that? Yes? 
Right, Mazorsky's pictures at an exhibition. Uh, and I, I'm gonna weave that tune into my sermon this morning, believe it or not. Uh, but I, first I wanna, I wanna start by telling you a, a brief story that will sort of put that in the context of something else, which is I used to work for an organization called Young Life and we would take kids to camp in Colorado. And the camps would end um, on an afternoon and the kids would all pile into a bus and then we would drive, uh, the bus drivers would, would take us from the mountains of Colorado um, back here. Uh, and so if you've ever been to Colorado, you know that the mountains are on the west side and eastern Colorado leads into Kansas, et cetera. It's, there's not a whole lot east of the mountains. Once you get on the road, you're just on the road. And so the kid, we, they would, we would leave in the evening and um, the sun would go down and the bus driver would drive uh, you know, five or six hours and then they would switch drivers and another driver would get on. And, and one day that we were doing that and um, um, there they go again. And the, the, as the sun came up, um, those of us who had slept through the night looked out the front window of the bus and saw the Rocky Mountains looming on the horizon. Uh, what had happened, obviously, was that the first bus driver had started heading east and drove for five or six hours, and then the second bus driver gets in the bus and at a rest stop gets in and accidentally heads west. And so we found ourselves right back where we'd started. Um, and the reason that that's easy to do if you've ever been to East Colorado or Kansas is because there's no obvious, it's just miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of just plainness. Just mile after mile after mile of just straight. Yeah, and, and you begin to think, gee, am I on the right road? Am I going the right direction? And if you don't pay attention to the little signs along the way, it's very easy to get confused as these bus drivers did. So the parents started to panic and we told them your kids are gonna be home a day late and so. The scripture can be like that sometimes. You can, you can come across passages of scripture where you think, where is God in this? What in the world is happening? How did that get into this book? And the passage that you have in front of you this morning is one of those passages where it just seems like craziness because it is craziness. The title of this sermon series is God in the Grind, and the idea, uh, as David explained it to me, is that we meet God in the grind of life. And I was with some old high school buddies last weekend, as a matter of fact, and um, and there was a guy there. We were making coffee, you know. I love it. They were making coffee, and 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 this guy was. He was sort of miffed that they didn't have a real conical burr grinder. You know, it was just pre-ground coffee. And he went into this soliloquy about how you really can't appreciate coffee unless it's freshly ground in a conical burr grinder with titanium gears. And, and he had this whole understanding of the fact that the coffee bean must be crushed and the husk of the bean uh, separated from the meat of the bean in order to release the true essence of the bean. And the rest of us thought he was full of, you know, baloney, but he, um, he was actually onto something. That one of the ways that God sort of gets us to understand our essence, and one of the ways that God gets us to express what he has put inside of us is to put us through grinders. 
It is how he separates the husk of our life from the meat of our life. It is how the true person that you are is brought forth. And that's what happens here with Saul. Uh, the piece that Anne played so wonderfully, and it's, you are so blessed, let me tell you, to have Anne here as your music director. She's just so gifted to be able to play that. Was written by, as our friend over here pointed out, Modest Mazorsky, a Russian composer. It was written in 1874. Um, as he, as he reflected on his experience walking around a, um, what do you call it when they hang pictures and people walk around? Yeah, a gallery, okay. Um, uh, he had a friend named Victor Hartman who had died the year before who had been a painter and they, they did a, an exhibition of this guy's paintings and Modest Mazorsky went to this pictures at an exhibition and I guess that's the word, exhibition, isn't it? They. Uh, and he was reflecting on that, and he created this symphony that weaves together his experience of seeing all of these different uh, paintings, all done by the same person, and yet different, all expressing similar themes but differently. And they are tied together in Mazorsky's work with this promenade. And it appears five times. It originally appeared 10 times, but he took out five of them. It just kind of got old. And it's this underlying theme that kind of surfaces and then fades into the background. And then surfaces and fades into the background. And that ties everything together. And there are times when you kind of wonder, gee, that was such a haunting tune, such a beautiful tune. I wonder where it went. Well, it's, it's in there. It's just in the background. And then it's going to come back. Well. I'm going to invite you today to see the story today uh, of Saul's madness in the context of a larger symphony. I want you to see it as part of what God is doing in the world. Now, many of you are familiar with Saul's story. Saul, the, the people of Israel came out of Egypt where they had a pharaoh and they wandered in the wilderness and then they get into the land and there are 12 tribes and they put together a confederation and that doesn't seem to work very well and they are ruled by people called judges. And so they say, we want somebody to rule over us. We want a king. And so the first king that is chosen is a guy named Saul. Now, Saul was picked by a guy named Samuel, which is a great name. And uh, he picked Saul because, if you read the text, because Saul was good looking, kind of like me, and, and tall, kind of like me. You know? uh, and Saul is driven, it turns out, by he's got some demons. Now, you can take that as he's just got some psychological problems. You can take that as he's got some spiritual problems. You can take it. It's probably a combination of both. But as he lives into the calling that God has laid on his life, these things start to take over his life and start to ruin his life and the life of those around him. And the passage in front of you, um, if you haven't read it, you can read it while I'm if you get lost in the sermon or you get bored, you can read the passage. And you see in that passage that not only Saul's son, Jonathan, but his daughter, Michael, and his mentor, Samuel, all take turns trying to protect David from Saul's craziness. Because Saul was driven by a several things. One was insecurity. In chapter 9, verse 21, Saul says to Samuel, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? 
And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me? In other words, what do I have to offer? An intense insecurity, a feeling that I'm kind of a fraud. What, what if people really knew that I'm not who they think I am? Another thing that drove him was a severe sense of anxiety. There was a time when Samuel told him, he said, look, I'll be there, you just wait, okay? I promise I'll be there, we got this under control, and when I come, I'm gonna ask God's blessing on what you're doing. But in the meantime, just hang. Well, Samuel doesn't show up and doesn't show up and doesn't show up, and Saul starts to get anxious, and he starts to think, well, maybe God isn't gonna come through for me. Maybe this isn't gonna happen the way I want it to, so I need to step in and do God's part for him. Chapter 13, uh, verse 12, Saul said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. In other words, I was waiting for Samuel, he didn't come. And so he says, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering that Samuel was supposed to offer. In other words, I got so anxious. I, got, I couldn't contain myself. I had to do something. I couldn't wait on the Lord. I couldn't trust you. I couldn't trust God. Saul was also driven by anger. In chapter 18, verses 8 and 9, we read this. David and Saul come back from a battle and the people of the land, as they welcomed him, David returned from striking down the Philistines. The women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang one to another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his 10,000s. And Saul was very angry at this saying. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul was driven by insecurity, anxiety, anger. Anger is your reaction when you don't get your way. When you think somebody is better than you. When you just can't measure up. And Saul responded in that way. And all of those are rooted in fear. Chapter 18, verses 28 and 29 says this, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that his daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. And so Saul was David's enemy continually. All of these are rooted in fear, fear that, that we're, we're not who we present ourselves to the world to be, that we're frauds. And that if people really knew us, if they, if they really knew that we were from the least tribe of the least clan of the least whatever, they wouldn't respect us. Or anxiety, that God isn't gonna show up in time. That, that yeah, he made a promise and other people made promises, but I can't count on God, I can't count on other people. Or anger, that the world isn't going my way. I'm not getting what I want when I want it. And all of these grow out of fear. And fear, in this case, with Saul, was rooted in a basic misunderstanding of his role in the world. And I think that's true for me, and it may be true of you. My fear is rooted in a basic misunderstanding of my role in God's 
world and in God's plan. Saul confused his calling and his kingdom with God's kingdom. When God called Saul back in chapter 10, he says this, Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? Now, the Hebrew language had a perfectly good word for king, melech. They didn't use that word. God, did, God was saying to Saul, look, I'm, I'm making you a prince. Don't confuse your role as my servant with being in charge. You are a steward of my authority. I'm the king. I'm the only king. You are an interim. Every single person in this room, I don't care what job you have, you are an interim. The Queen of England is an interim. The bishop of this diocese is an interim. The pastor of this church is an interim pastor. We all need to think of our roles as that of an interim. In chapter 20, Paul says, uh, Saul says this to his son, Jonathan. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen David to your own shame? For as long as David lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Saul thought of his kingdom as being one that was going to carry on in perpetuity through his, son David, through his son Jonathan. It wasn't going to be based on God's calling or God's ability or God's gifting. It was just going to pass on. He didn't understand that his role was under authority and at the pleasure of the true king, which is God. Only God gets to keep his job. And this resulted in Saul's crippling paranoia and anxiety. An inability to see the world as it really is and to believe that you have the resources to cope with that reality. His descent into madness was rooted in his inability to say, yeah, I've got a role to play and it's an important role, but I'm a role player. And I serve at the pleasure of the king and I serve as part of this ongoing symphony of life that God has put together. And at times I can see what God is doing and at other times I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. At times the theme of God's great love, let us make man in our image. The idea of sacrifice that's right there in the garden when Adam and Eve sin, God has to slay an animal to cover their shame. The idea that death is the penalty for sin and that only God can ultimately pay that penalty. The idea that we were created out of love for fellowship with the Father. That theme is totally lost in Saul as blind ambition, jealousy, and greed and insecurity just overwhelm him. The antidote to this sad and frightening situation is to take a step back and to see what in modern lingo we would call the meta-narrative, okay? When you go to seminary, you, you learn a fancy German word called Heilsgeschichte, um, which is a wonderful German word, and it means salvation history. In other words, God has been at work throughout from the creation until now to bring about his purposes. It's more clear at some times than other. Heilsgeschichte. Now maybe you recognize that word Heil 
some of you may remember it from a salute that the Nazis used. They used it to mean victory, but it actually, before the Nazis took it over, in German it meant health, holiness, or salvation. And so when they said Heil Hitler, they were saying Hitler our savior, Hitler our holiness, Hitler our health. Well, that is an unbelievable corruption of the original meaning of Heil. Heil's Geschichte means that God has been at work this entire time, sometimes visibly and sometimes invisibly. You know, God does not appear in this chapter at all. It's not there. It's just like the book of Esther. If you've ever read the book of Esther in the Bible, it's back in the clean part of your Bible. Uh, God does not appear in the book of Esther. And yet God is deeply implied in the book of Esther. God is deeply involved in this chapter, but he does not appear by name. He's working behind the scenes. He is bringing about his victory, his triumph. And when we take a step back and we see this book for what it really is, we can put our place in it and it can give us an enormous sense of peace and purpose. It can deal with the sense of insecurity, anxiety, anger, and fear that may be driving us because we can see that God is at work even in the times when the signposts are few and far between, even when the road just kind of appears to be one day after another, like Eastern Colorado and Kansas. Jesus in John 5 says to the scholars of his day, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you will find your salvation. But he says, this whole book is about me. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, after his resurrection, says something truly remarkable to his disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, the reason that that's remarkable is because of the way Jesus phrases that. Everything that's written about me in Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. The Jews don't call the Old Testament the Old Testament. They call it the Tanakh which is actually, uh, all, all Hebrew words are three consonant, have a three consonant root. In this case, T, or uh, the English letter T, the English letter N, the English letter K. T-N-K, they pronounce it Tanakh. And the reason that they call what we call the Old Testament the Tanakh is because it covers the Torah, which is the law, the Nevi'im, which is the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings, or the Psalms. So Jesus is saying, that this whole book is not about you. It's not a self-help book. It's not a book about politics or economics. This is a book about Jesus. And every story in this book needs to be read through the lens of God's ultimate composition of the symphony of life that in German was Heilsgeschichte in our life is the way of salvation. God is constantly at work through the law, through the prophets, through the Psalms, and all of those point back to Jesus. If we read this book with the idea that this is some kind of a self-help manual or that this is a book about us 
or that this is a book about America, or that this is a book about uh, economic theory or political theory. We miss the overarching point, which is that this is a book about God's ultimate revelation of himself and his ultimate salvation offered in Christ from the very beginning. And that whatever is going on in your life, whatever the grind of your life is right now, if you take a step back and say, I'm going to intentionally see my life as part of a composition by one master composer, by one great hand who sees it all, one great theme, one journey through various themes, and the theme kind of comes and goes and emerges and closes, but it's intended to draw us through the entire experience of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the happy, the sad, the joyful, the hard, but God is at work in all of that, grinding away in our life to get rid of the husk, bring out the meat, bring out the essence of who he created us to be. And so to the extent that we choose to see our life through God's lens, with his priorities, with his timing in mind, and choose to see his heart of love ultimately expressed in that wonderful, beautiful musical theme that was laid down in the Garden of Genesis when God said, let us make man in our image. The us there includes Jesus and the fact that he sent his son to die for us. Perfect love, we're told in 1 John, casts out fear. When we understand that our life is part of that symphony of love, when we see our place as part of God's ongoing work, then we can rejoice knowing that the final triumph is his when that great theme is brought back in clarity and laid before us and we rejoice and that little tune that's been playing in the back of our minds comes to glorious fruition when the crucified, resurrected Jesus comes back as the glorified king and all the pieces fall into place. Thank you.